from Austin. Welcome to episode 129 of the National Security Law Podcast. We're brought to you by the Strauss Center at the University of Texas. It's Wednesday, July 24th, 2019, and I'm Bobby Chesney. I'm Steve Vladek. Well, we're back. We're back. And we've got some interesting things to talk about this week. And we are not watching the Mueller hearing. <laughs> we're, we're doing this instead of watching. Okay, so incredibly, because I, I would have thought you'd be all over that. And, and I can't watch those things. No, I'm, I'm, I'm so happy for you because, you know, I'm concerned about your uh, mental health. Your, yeah, your, your health and, and like your general state of optimism versus pessimism. And I think it would have not helped you, not helped you to watch that because I watched it for uh, about... 30 minutes uh-huh. and I just had to stop watching that. And, and you had a, you had a Steve Ballard of, 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 you know, something is wrong on the internet. Something is wrong. This is, this is not how this ought to work. That's what I thought. Um, uh, but Wait. we're not going to really talk about it. As no, a because, because, you know, life's too short. Life is too short, uh, but it's not too and, short. And to... because I suspect that our listeners um, are not the large swath of the American people that have done, that have made no effort to figure out what's in the Mueller report. No, I'm sure that's right. I'm sure they're, they're aware um, and, and I guess, uh, no, let's not talk about, it. let's talk about what we're going to talk about. We've got some good items this week. So, well, um, you know, the, 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 you know, no, no higher than second most watched congressional hearing today, That's um, right. is the Senate foreign relations committee's hearings on what AUMFs and stuff. Yeah, they're having an interesting and relevant war power hearing. That will hearing. get zero attention from anybody. But we're going to give it attention. Well, okay, fine. So zero attention from anybody who matters. That's right. <laughs> but us, well, but that's like an insult to our listeners. You guys, we love y'all. You, you matter. guys matter. You matter. Steve and I, not so much. But I, we I question some of the decisions our listeners make. Like listening b- to buying us. our t-shirts, buying our t-shirts, <laughs> listen to our podcast. By the way, is it listeners? Is it time for a, a new round of of uh, Philanthropic T-shirt. <laughs> yeah, we've got like two weeks without a Bobby swag promise. We, so we do need to, we need to get our swag back out there. Um, you know, let's do that. Let's let's start ideas coming to us for a new T-shirt for the podcast or other swag if you'd prefer. Let us know what you think. Um, we're going to talk about the AUMF focused hearing this morning. There's there's a number of interesting things that have been said, and we're going to focus on the uh, the written testimony of the acting State Department legal advisor, Merrick String. Uh, and apologies if I mispronounce Merrick's first name. Maybe it's uh, pronounced differently than that, but I think Merrick is what I'm going to say. Uh, what else we got, Steve? Um, there's a new prime minister. <laughs> Her, Her Majesty Bo- officially Bojo. invited in, officially invited Boris Johnson to form a new government. Good that, luck with that. That must have been quite a scene. Uh, Bojo is on board. Uh, there's actually, there's a, the royal family Twitter account, which I may or may not follow, um, uh, tw- tweeted out a picture of, of you know, the, the handshake. Um, this is, I think, uh, Queen Elizabeth's 14th prime minister. And man, Bor- you know, the line from Winston Churchill to Boris Johnson is just such a... That is really a straight, a not so straight line. That's pretty incredible. All right, just, so uh, just when you think our political situation can't, like you know, is is, is it, just when you think that the writers are having too much fun with our political situation. Oh, I, then I, I read about what's going yeah, on in England. You know, when you when you compare with with Brexit and in our travails of the past few years, uh, it's a reminder both that you know these sorts of problems are not unique to us, and also a more serious reminder that in fact the the larger currents of populism and the larger uh, dynamics associated with how information technologies changed, how media and information, how knowledge of policy issues and the leveraging of the populace works. Um, these are transnational phenomenon. They're, they're, they're a lot of the same dynamics having similar effects in lots of places. But to our British listeners, I- I'm sorry. Buckle up. How about that? I was going to say, I'm, I'm sorry. <laughs> 
Quite. Quite. Did you see this thing I on saw Twitter? This, I saw this thing on Twitter. Okay, that was so so I am, interesting. So I am totally mortified by this. So apparently we've been, so I, I say I say quite a lot as a sort of just, you know, like as a wonder, like, you know. Wait, we should explain what the thing on Twitter oh, was. Oh, sorry. So you want, you want to go first? Let me find the tweet. All right, you dig that up. So here's what I understood to be. Somebody, I don't remember who, uh, I think coming first from the British side, basically said like, wait, American friends, can you confirm, is this possibly true, that basically common usage for quite as a modifier, before we get to standalone quite, just quite this, quite that, uh, is opposite on Holly, both sides, So right? Holly Brockwell is a technology journalist, um, and and she has, a, she has a pretty large following on Twitter, and she basically found this, this discussion board um, about, you know, so here's what it says, quite, an adverbial modifier that shades the meaning of a statement. Americans use quite to amplify their enthusiasm for the adjective. Absolutely. That is quite exciting. In the way they would use we mean that really, in a positive very, way. or totally. By the way, that sounds like it's from the 80s. Totally. Totally, dude. Um, <laughs> by contrast, if a Brit volunteers that a visitor is quite attractive, they're only saying fairly or sort of attractive. So I did not know that. I did not know that either. <laughs> I thought quite was like this, like, uh, I thought I thought quite was a, a classically understated, like a British soccer commentator. You know, quite a nice guy. Um, that that was a quite quite a shot. You know, the uh, um, like Harry Kane's goal from midfield at the in the in stop in stoppage time in the international championship cup this weekend. Like, oh, you know, quite a goal from Harry Kane, and apparently, quite is 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 like you right. know. Meh. So, so, question for our British listeners: Is that right? Is is the common dominant usage there like it actually undercuts the emphasis, the opposite of how we use it? And then, what right. does it mean have, for have when you been, say it standing alone? Have we been have we been overstating British enthusiasm for decades? <laughs> quite possibly. Now, when quite when, now you say you say on the show a lot, you'll say quite as just sort of a mark, a understated marker of emphasis, right? Yes. yes. Um, I, I use it, I, and it, I think I thought that was a common usage too, but I'm worried that it has more of a as I think the analogy here would be sort of a. Bless your heart. Yeah. Sounds nice. Sounds like it's saying something positive. Right. It's not really. It's a Bo- little passive aggressive. Boris Johnson's the prime minister. Quite. All right. So, <laughs> listeners, uh, we've been butchering this maybe in the past, By maybe the way, right now. But, but we need our episode title has to have quite in it. Quite. Quite an episode. Quite. <laughs> yeah. I like that. Okay. That's well, as long as it's not quite an episode. Well, we've done that one too. Yeah. Why not? All right. We are done with that. Let's go back to our run of show. <laughs> AUMF coverage. I'm sorry, but that was good. That was very good. Okay. AUMF coverage. Um, we also want to talk about this uh, The story that also got zero attention last week was the um, announcement, I think it was by Pompeo, um, that the United States has taken into custody and transferred from Syria a U.S. citizen, Bobby, who was being held by SDF forces and who is now under indictment, I, get, I gather, yeah, in federal yes. district court in Brooklyn. Uh, I think it may yet, it may not be an indictment, maybe a criminal complaint, but uh, we'll talk about the case against Ruslan Asayanov and maybe we'll compare and contrast that with Dovi Mattis, of course. Um, staying with the military detention theme, yeah, you've we got had an a, update on... Uh, so the, the prosecution in the 9-11 case has actually started to, to preview some of its arguments about why... Um, the various interrogation practices to which the 9-11 defense were subjected shouldn't require any sanction, right? Shouldn't lead to any sort of um, adjustment of the trial proceedings. Basically, should largely just be left out of the trial. So we'll talk about the procedural posture in which this question's arising and, and 
um, dig into the merits maybe yep. a, t- a tiny bit. Um, also, it's an anniversary, Bobby. Oh, happy anniversary, Richard Nixon. Well, well not so happy anniversary, Richard Nixon. Um, right, so uh, 45 years ago today, on July 24th, 1974, we had a rare summer Supreme Court decision um, in the Watergate tapes case. We'll just talk briefly about sort of how that decision is an interesting marker for where we are today and for some of the fights that are coming. Um, We also want to talk about comments Bill Barr, the Attorney General, made yesterday, Bobby, about encryption. Did you see Michael Hayden's response on Twitter? I did. I did. Michael Hayden's a a fun follow on Twitter. (laughs) And and by the way, seems to be uh, recovering well from from the medical scare he had. So that's great to see. Uh, And sarcastically. Uh, he, he, is, uh, he has got a good tone on Twitter. The, this website is free. He gets good tone. Um, uh, and, then, and because we are, we are deeply frivolous, um, Bobby and I were both very, very excited by the new trailer for Westworld Season 3 that dropped at Comic-Con over the weekend. So Comic-Con basically has become this thing for dropping awesome news in trailers, it seems like. And uh, I've never been. Have you? Uh, I have No. All right. So, so, so Karen likes to talk about. So, when I was like ten, I really, really, really wanted um, a Star Trek uniform um, for for like I think it was for Hanukkah or for my birthday. Captain's red or what? Um, I think I wanted red. Um, I had just really started getting into ten or eleven. I must have been eleven. I'd really got started getting into Star Trek: The Next Generation. Wait, here's a qu- quick question. Digress. Picard wore red, yeah. Captain, yeah. but Kirk wore the, the gold. Well, the, so the, there's an inconsistency, right, over the years in which colors communica- uh, convey which gold was command, right, in the original series, yeah. and red was like engineering or security. Um, that sort of evolves. Yeah. The- By the way, I have to plug John Scalzi's book, Red Shirts, mm. right here. It is, if, if you the know The poor this Red book, Shirts. Yes, uh, just look it up. It's so great. If you listen to this show and you put up with our nerdistry, uh, you'll you'll enjoy that book. But anyway, so, so just to finish the story really quickly. So um, I definitely wanted a Star Trek uniform. Um, and my parents, as has historically been their want, um, did not actually get me for my birthday anything that I actually wanted. Um, and, and as <laughs> no, Karen, no bitterness here. And as Karen points out, this was one episode where they were absolutely right. Like, you yeah. know, <laughs> I, I had enough trouble. They were, they, were, they were doing you a little favor. They were looking out for me. Uh, um, they were like, oh, Steve. You're so sweet, but we really can't do we're, that to you. We're not sending you to middle school in a in a Star Trek: The Next Generation. Showing up uniform. like a boss on day one. I mean, issuing I, commands. I'm just saying, you know, <laughs> resistance is futile. Hey, you know what though? You can get yourself that uniform now. I can. I'd rather stay married. Hey, no, Halloween at least use it for Halloween. <laughs> it's it's, a, it's like a freebie day once a year. Once a year, you get to wear that. That's yeah. probably plenty. Indeed. Um, anyway, all right, so, so we'll nerd out so, with the Westworld so, trailer. So this, this all is because you asked me if I've ever been to Comic Con, right? So, yeah. so I think you know, much to Karen's uh, um, delight, I've never quite crossed all the way over into the, you know. Well, if if any of the listeners happen to be bigwigs organizing Comic Con and you want National Security yeah, Law podcast dude. to be done with a uh, sort of a superhero and comics theme or a we'll proper happily... legal analysis of of developments in you know in these in these in these shows and movies it, there's a lot of litigation that would happen if any of the stuff in the comics actually occurred right that just doesn't seem to occur yeah like, where, where are, the are the lawyers yeah. yeah yeah well you know there so I will say and uh, longtime readers of the Avengers will will know this in the 80s they had an affirmative action uh, thing in one of the comics where they changed the lineup to comply with government, federal government imposed affirmative action requirements uh, in order to keep their so-called security clearances in the comic. And it ends up uh, with Hawkeye getting booted 
and replaced by Falcon, which is really something. Um, yeah, I think Bobby just out-nerded me. That, that's some pretty deep Avengers nerdistry, but I'm proud of that one. All right, let's dive in with the AUMF issue in the Senate Foreign Relations uh, hearing that's going on as we speak. I think that there's – I want to start this way. Harrison Kramer of National Journal reached out to me earlier uh, today to say that he had spotted something that I think no one else had yet cottoned on to. But I think it's a – I think it is news and it's important in our world. Uh, in the written statement and I think in the spoken testimony from, from the acting legal advisor of the State Department, Merrick String, there is an express listing – of the current roster of associated forces of al-Qaeda engaged in hostilities against the United States and thus subject to the AUMF on a group basis rather than on any kind of individualized basis. Uh, And for the most part, it's what you'd expect. The list says al-Qaeda, the Taliban, uh, unspecified other terrorist or insurgent groups affiliated with al-Qaeda and the Taliban in Afghanistan, which is, I know that may, if you've, if you've not been tracking that issue for a long time, that may sound like a, a wide open sort of blank checked sort of reference, it may sound unsettling. The reality is there's always been this large number of groups like the Haqqani Network being a prime example, maybe the Islamic movement of Uzbekistan that are on the ground, have been engaged in off and on combat with the United States and government of Afghanistan forces in Afghanistan. These are the original associated forces going all the way back, and actually, in most cases, the most clearly defensible ones uh, for inclusion within the scope of the AMF uh, on many dimensions. It goes on beyond those, I think, well-settled examples, mentions AQAP. We've known about that for a long time. It mentions Al-Shabaab. Now, that that may strike some as new. It's not new. We've known for a while that Al-Shabaab has been sort of elevated, if you will, from being a group against which we use force on other bases, aside from claiming that the group writ large had come within the associated forces under the AMF category. Um, so we knew that already. Al-Qaeda's Syria operation, which at one point known as the Al-Nusra Front, that's not news. Uh, the Islamic State, that's not news. But then also AQIM, Al-Qaeda in the lands of the Islamic Maghreb. This is the, this is the originally um, Algeria-based Salafist group for call and combat, uh, or depending on the translation, SFPC, that eventually affiliated over to Al-Qaeda. We have known since last year that it might well be on the list, but I don't think until the written testimony today we had a public confirmation of it. I'm not familiar with the previous one. So last year, in 2018, when when one of the periodic AUMF reform bills was put in place— um, it included a list of five groups that would be pre-identified, including as, AQIM, right? Exactly. And at that, so the was that was that Corker Kane? It was Corker Kane, absolutely. And so that list mentioned AQAP, Al Shabaab, Al Qaeda in Syria, the Haqqani Network, and the last item on the list was AQIM. And at the time, I wrote that. Uh, here, here's why I wrote on Lawfare at the time. First four on that list are utterly unsurprising if you've been following how the executive branch has publicly interpreted the 2001 AMF. The fifth one surprised me a bit. I'm not sure if I've seen public confirmation that the administration has already categorized AQIM as an associated force engaged in hostilities to a sufficient degree to count under the AMF. There have certainly been some uses of force against AQIM-linked individuals, but in at least some of those cases, the public reporting suggested at the time that the target had personal or individual direct connections to the Al-Qaeda core. At any rate, AQIM's inclusion in this draft strongly suggests that the continued instability in the Sahel region has already led the AUMF to be interpreted to include AQIM. So I think that that was probably in place by then. 
Uh, it does underscore something that is a point in which you and I agree, although we don't agree a lot about AUMF reform, but we agree on this. It's ridiculous that we don't have public knowledge of, at, at least within a certain period of time of these decisions being made, as to who's in and who's out. And it's it's fascinating to me that it could just sort of be made public today and it wasn't public before, but now it is. And frankly, most people won't care, right. won't pause to think about what won't it means. Won't understand the significance of it. Right. So in, let's unpack are you that. Are you in or are you out? And, and they're in now. What does it mean to be in? It means that, this is my, my take on this, when a group is given that full uh, organizational uh, status, it means that in principle— the, the law of armed conflict model that the United States government has now embraced for two decades vis-a-vis AUMF-covered groups means that you could go after individual members based on their organizational status. You can go after them where they can be found, perhaps, you know, certainly subject to UN charter restraints and other bodies of law, perhaps. But as far as the uh, scope of who's targetable, it means that it's enough to target you if you're in the group. Whereas if you're part of a group that is not not subject to that level of status. You may have an individual basis for targeting you, but it gets much more complicated. Maybe you're individually tied to core al-Qaeda. Maybe your individual conduct uh, makes you a threat such that the U.S. government would use force against you. Um, But you don't make it status-based targeting alone until a group comes within this scope. So uh, yeah, it's a big deal. That doesn't mean that now suddenly we're going to start using force against every AQIM member wherever they can be found. There are still policy constraints. There's rule of engagement constraints. There's UN charter sort of sovereignty uh, constraints on locations of using force. Uh, There's policy constraints above all. But the legal framework is such that you could, just as we would presumably be able to make similar claims against all al-Shabaab members because they're on the list too. So uh, I do think it's a big deal. Uh, what else should we talk about from the testimony? There's more that was in there that's worth noting. I think the actual motivation for the hearing, of course, is to try to probe whether and to what extent the AUMFs from 2001 or 2002, the Iraq AUMF, might be interpreted to encompass Iran, which is what is right. got everyone. And there focused. was, I mean, and there was a House vote, right, to repeal the 2002 AUMF. So, right there's the sort of specter of whether that might even somehow make it into the conference fight over the NDAA. And yeah, there's a. Uh, there's a bit in his written testimony, and I think more in his spoken testimony in response to questions, basically saying that the 2002 AUMF should be kept on the books because it might still matter in ways that are unpredictable at this point. And, and the example given was the very serious example of the the sudden rise of the Islamic State within Iraq. Now, whether the 2002 AUMF is is necessary as opposed to relevant to make arguments about AUMF coverage, given the ability to perhaps cite the 2001 AUMF, which is what they eventually uh, rested the argument primarily upon. Um, Although they started with Article 2, we should never forget, but then eventually they switched to the AUMFs. In any event, um, I think it's a good point that you don't know what might unfold in Iraq, where it might lead the administration. Keep this AUMF on the books because we might need it one day. Well, I agree that it does, it's no way to run the railroad to just sort of keep it lying around, but I see what he's saying insofar as the 2009, uh, sorry, the 2013-ish rise of the Islamic State made it seem more relevant to the administration than it previously had, even under the Obama administration. There's something to that, but I agree with your point that that's not a sufficient basis just to keep it lying around. Um, so as to Iran, here's what he says, because the thing that scares people, I think, 
is the possibility that the administration has already decided that under the harboring prong of the 2001 AUMF, that Iran, because you occasionally hear these statements from Pompeo and others to the effect that Iran's harboring members of al-Qaeda, if, if that were right and if it were really pushed, that would be a way to try to argue that the 2001 AMF already authorizes force against Iran. Here's what String wrote. The administration has not to date interpreted either the 2001 or 2002 AMF as authorizing military force against Iran, except as may be necessary to defend U.S. or partner forces as they pursue missions authorized under either AUMF. The latter nuance is simply a reassertion of a longstanding right of self-defense for our military forces and those allies and partners deployed alongside them. Simply put, where U.S. forces are engaged in operations with partner forces anywhere in the world pursuant to either the 2001 or 2002 AUMF, if those forces either come under attack or face with an imminent armed attack, U.S. forces are authorized to use appropriate force to respond where it is necessary and appropriate to defend themselves and our partners. This principle is not new. It's not specific to Iran or to any particular country or non-state group. Um, all that actually sounds quite right. To, quite. It sounds very, really right to me. Steve, do you object to any of that? Not, not as, not as, as laid out there. Right. You'd be worried about particular applications, perhaps. Yes. Yes. Um, but the, as a statement, I think that's a statement that could have been uh, made by lawyers from any that's recent right. administration. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Uh, now, there's an interesting question. Since he emphasizes that this interpretation has not been made to date, naturally it follows to ask, well, okay, but what if you guys decide tomorrow that Iran is harboring al-Qaeda? Uh, anticipating that point, String wrote... Uh, Section 1264B of the FY 2018 National Defense Authorization Act states that no later than 30 days after the date on which a change is made to the legal and policy frameworks for the United States' use of military force in related national security operations, the president's to notify the appropriate congressional committees of the change, including its legal, factual, and policy justifications. Basically, what he says is, if we do make this change, we are bound by statute to notify you of it within 30 days. Now, of course, all hell can break loose uh, figuratively and literally within 30 days. But there is in place under last year's NDAA, or actually, I guess that's two years ago, uh, two years ago NDAA, there's a framework in place to compel notification in addition to the War Powers Resolution, of course. So, so that's something to bear in mind. Now, Steve, what about this? He, he has an Article 2 paragraph. He says, Prior administrations have consistently relied on the president's constitutional authority to direct military force without specific prior congressional authorization. And he cites Libya 2011, Yugoslavia in the late 90s, uh, troop deployments to Haiti twice in 2004, 1994, deployments to Bosnia in 95, Somalia in 1992, airstrikes and air patrols in Bosnia in the early 90s, the Panama, uh, what he calls intervention, so the, the Panama invasion bombing Libya, El Dorado Canyon, 1986. Um, and then he says, most recently, OLC explained its view in its 2018 opinion concerning the use of force against chemical weapons targets in Syria. I think this is something that you and I have tried to emphasize that's not caught on in the larger debate. The larger debate, insofar as it pays attention to the war powers question vis-a-vis -vis Iran, relentlessly focuses on the possibility that the administration will claim the 2001 AMF applies. We've argued that the much more likely scenario in which uh, things begin to escalate would be, in part, what we've seen 
little early glimmers of with the, the drone shoot down and other things recently. And that is that there will be an Article 2-based uh, claim quite independent, uh, again, quite really independent of the uh, AUMF argument. Bill Barr, when he was in the Bush, the original Bush 41 administration, had been a proponent of a very broad interpretation of the president's war powers under Article 2. We've talked about that before. Um, this, this written testimony is a reminder that that position's out there and that it's not a position that is unique to this president. Um, whether and how far one can plausibly run with it is the, the big question. Right. Yeah. Um, well, I mean, kudos to the SFRC for having the hearing, but, yeah. you know. Well, one last thing from the written testimony that's worth noting, because yeah. he, he does say at the end that, of course, the administration does not support the claim that there's a need to reform either the 01 or 02 AMFs. Which, by the way, is a break from the Obama administration, which actually agreed that reform would be useful, right? Not mm-hmm. not that not that it lacked the authority to do what it was doing. Well, it had it had its pitch as to what it ought to be. Right. Uh, but that leads us to the, to the next point. So String says, look, if Congress does go down the reform path, he says, quote, if Congress were to consider a new or revised AMF, the administration affirms the same three criteria stated previously to this committee. Uh, one, any new AMF must have no sunset provision. <laughs> Two, no, no geographic limitation. And three, no repeal before replacement. Now, so any new, I think any new AMF st- must look like the old AMF. Well, I don't think that's at all what that says. I know. I'm just <laughs> Okay, so the easiest thing on that list, I think number three, no repeal before replacement. I don't think anybody's pushing for a repeal before replacement, so I think that's not an issue. Um, I actually think the geographic constraints are also probably ultimately not an issue. Like, if you actually had a bill that was otherwise useful, I think there'd be broad consensus even without geographic limitations. Yeah, so for my part, I'm definitely uh, opposed to the idea of introducing geographic limitations. Depending on what they might be, there might be a version of it that's susceptible. But I agree with your sense that that's probably not— A uh, deal breaker. It's probably not a poison pill. Um, the sunset, and, and conversely, though. I think some some of the dra- there have been a lot of different draft reform bills. Some of them have been like very specific, you know, Af- Afghanistan and Iraq, Syria. That's it. Um, that may or may not be the right answer, but I do think that'll certainly be a real deal breaker from the executive branch's point of view. They'll yep. never sign that bill, um, with the a pos- sun- with the yeah. possible exception of a nothing within the U.S. Right mm. uh, caveat. Right, sure. I should have been clear about that. I think actually that that would actually not only be the the right rule, um, but one that could be sold and could be the basis for a deal. But so, so just the one geographic restriction I could see not being a sort of a poison pill. Yeah, from the executive perspective, yeah. totally agreed. Uh, the sunset's an interesting question. Do you think it's it's uh, is this something that if the administration is serious that they won't sign something with a sunset, then that's just then there's never going to be a reform bill because there will always be a sunset provision in it. And as you know, I support a sunset. I know. Um, I guess the question is: Is the administration is, is that is the administration serious or is it posturing? Like, if the, if the bill were otherwise unobjectionable in every other respect, and it had a three or four year sunset, and as a result, it actually had support from at least some Republicans in both chambers, right? Would we still see a veto threat? I don't know. Yeah, it, it maybe so because vetoing is cheap and easy here. In that the status quo, if you veto, right, just carry on. That's right. Yeah. Well, and this goes back to the broader conversation we've had before about the sort of the post-INS versus Chada difficulty of Congress reclaiming power from a president that doesn't want to let them. You know, yeah, we, we could go round and round about it. <laughs> Congress can reclaim power and all sort. It has all sorts of tools available to it. What it doesn't have is the will to use them all. Indeed. Um, Political or otherwise. Right. Um, all right. Should we move along to other other speaking of yeah. speaking of AUMF? 
awkwardness in Americans. All right, so so we mentioned ISIS is treated as an associated force. Uh, we have done a lot of using force against the Islamic State, but relatively little uh, military detention of Islamic State members. This show for, for many, many, many months focused on the one very prominent example involving John Doe, U.S. citizen who ended up in U.S. military custody after SDF captured the guy or he surrendered to them, and then he was turned over to U.S. custody and kept abroad for, for a long period while litigation uh, ran its course. Uh, the other day, you got arguably a sort of superficially at least similar case that emerged in which the, the outcome or the disposition is looking quite different. The guy's been brought back into the United States and is in the regular federal criminal justice system. Ruslan Asenov is a 41-year-old guy who was, who's from Kazakhstan, he lived in Brooklyn from 98 to 2013 and became a naturalized U.S. citizen during that period. In 2013, he went over to join the Islamic State. According to the uh, the, the complaint, he uh, kind of rose through the ranks, became a sniper, was involved in um, you know training or supervision of others. Uh, here's, here's the key thing. So he's been brought back and he's facing a material support charge. And we noted during the John Doe case, the Doe v. Mattis litigation, that in theory, that, that same charge should have been available. As a legal matter, that charge was available as to John Doe. Why don't they just bring him back here to face that charge? And we had all sorts of theories as to why that might be. I, I think we agreed that it never, certainly it's never seemed to me that the government was trying to use that case to establish that they could detain the guy, that they wanted to use it to, to spread the, the scope or stability of the military detention model. I think on the contrary, DOD was unhappy to have that thing fall into their laps and they really wanted that case to get gone. What was, what was problematic instead was one of two things, maybe both. One, in that case, John Doe had uh, Saudi citizenship. And there was, I think, a strong desire, especially since he had not he he had, he had birthright citizenship. He had no U.S. ties of significance other than that. Um, I think he'd come back here for college, something. But like then that. had gone back and had long since been gone. And there was a desire just to keep that guy out, right? And and he had somewhere to go back to, which is the country where he'd actually been living. Um, Ruslan Aseyanov, not the same deal. This guy's, you know, for, what is that, 15 years, a Brooklyn resident and, and now a naturalized citizen. So it wasn't the same thing where they could, for example, perhaps send him off to Kazakhstan. Although maybe, maybe that's possible. It didn't seem similar in that respect. Here's the actual thing that drove it, in my opinion, though, more than anything. The question of what kind of evidence they had. To say that the materials support charge was available, if you can prove in court with admissible evidence, uh, Easy to say, but is it actually the reality? Here, it turns out, you can see from the complaint and from the detention memo that this guy was in pretty constant and very inculpatory contact with a NYPD confidential informant. So they have all these chat messages, they have tons of records of him saying this, doing this, sending pictures. They had an evidentiary foundation for this guy that appears to be much, much stronger than what they had in the case of John Doe. So I think those two factors help me look at this and think nothing inconsistent here. This is just two different outcomes that reflect what the evidentiary bases and maybe the citizenship angles were in the two cases. So I'm not bothered by what I see here. Oh, not at all. I, I just, it's yet, yet another example, right, of business as usual, right, of sort of high-profile terrorism case that just goes totally under the radar because 
it's obvious what the right disposition is. So I would propose to you that you should be happy about that. And the reason why I say that is that if it had, for whatever reason, really been a, sort of a uh, the sort of thing that Fox News is really emphasizing, then I think it would create pressure, from, perhaps from the top down and the administration, to ask that question that only sometimes gets asked, why isn't this person being sent to Guantanamo? Why isn't he being prosecuted for these things in the military commission process? Blissfully, I think, no one said anything about this in this case. Uh, and, I, and I think it's very telling that uh, no one seems to think that as a substantive matter, it's problematic that he was simply brought into the federal criminal justice system, where I assure you, this guy will be convicted. He'll get the max sentence. It'll all go smoothly. It'll work just like it should. And that that would not be the case, to put it mildly, uh, were he to be taken into. Now, yeah, I guess you could say, like, hey, the guy's a citizen. He can't be tried by commission. So that's a non-issue. Well, he can't, by, he can't be tried by a, a, by, by a military. Yeah, you he know this be, is my bugaboo. Yeah, he could be tried by otherwise. a Chapter Forty Seven commission. Right. I, I guess. I guess all I want to say is, I think it's great that we can at least sometimes be real mature in the in these events and treat it as uneventful. Yep. That a guy who can and should be prosecuted in a civilian process is being prosecuted in the civilian process. Agreed. All right. Um, well, speaking of the commissions, that was my weak attempt at a segue. We have some commission developments. So we do. I mean, so there's, there, you know, things are, are slowly moving along in military commission land. Um, one very mi- minor but important note, the, the trial judge in the Nishiri case did, in fact, um, excuse the former learned counsel, Rick Kamen. So I think that nonsense is finally behind us. So a layer taken out of the dip or resolve or I, Eden, I guess you would say. Someone ate that layer. Oof. Ooh, that, yeah, that, that's gross. It's, that's, that dip's been lying around on the table for a long time. Um, and and so and 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 approved the hiring of a new learned counsel. So it actually looks like the they're they're getting ready to rewind the clock to September 2015 and start again in Nishiri. Um, and then um, on the in the 9/11 case, so there is you know one of the major major pending pretrial motions. Um, is the defendant's motion to dismiss for outrageous governmental conduct, the, the so-called Rochin motion. Yeah, so this this sort of uh, move you see periodically in, in ordinary civilian criminal prosecutions, the basic idea is that at some level, if the sh- conscience is shocked enough, and th- thus the reference to Rochin, the, uh, the famous Supreme Court case in which uh, in order to get evidence of a narcotic situation, the police had uh, the hospital uh, involuntarily pump a guy's stomach when he, I think he'd swallowed the bag of drugs or something. And the government basically was found to have violated the Fifth Amendment due process clause, or maybe in that case, I guess right. it was the 14th. Compulsory um, surgery. Yeah, by, by doing something, by taking a step that just was shocking. It's yes. sort, so it's just general principle that there are certain lines that can't be crossed. Translated into the criminal prosecution context, the idea this is not, this is, one version of this is where you say, hey, maybe that's something that uh, you could have a Bivens uh, action against. Ha! Which just, I say that to trigger you. Ha! Uh, uh, but another, another context is, well, maybe where the government's pressing charges, maybe the indictment, just to deter the government from doing that sort of thing, maybe the penalty should be that the, either some charges or the entire indictment is simply thrown out. Right, now, sanction. We, and we've seen this attempted in very similar and not unrelated circumstances with Jose Padilla, who once out of the military detention system mm-hmm. and shifted into uh, the Southern District of Florida for criminal prosecution on material support charges, uh, had made a motion based on both his 
uh, incommunicado military detention period, but also how he was interrogated during that period, made a motion to dismiss the charges on grounds of outrageous government conduct. Uh, the district court in that case rejected that argument. Uh, I think there have been maybe one or two other similar attempts. They haven't worked before. But then again, in the 9-11 case, you've got maybe a different layer. A, a, I think here we're now talking about the enhanced interrogation right. technique. I mean, here got, we have, right. You got waterboarding here on the table. We've got, right. Um, Padilla was, I don't think, waterboarded. And you, so you don't have as extreme a fact pattern there, there to were, potentially I mean, there, cue the issue. There were significant allegations in Padilla's case that he was subjected to CIDT. They were subjected to cruel and human degrading treatment. Um, this led, of course, to the messy Ninth Circuit opinion in Padilla versus you about whether it was clearly established that what allegedly happened in the Padilla, because that's you know in the yeah, posture yeah. of the case, um, was in fact CIDT at the time of, right. the, of the of the of the misconduct. I think here the complication is that you, we have, among other things, the executive summary of the Senate Intelligence Committee's report on the CIA RDI program, Rendition Detention Interrogation, which you know the government's not about to say is false, right? And so against the backdrop of that report, which specifically identifies the five defendants in the 9/11 case and says they were tortured, so. Well, okay, so there's. is it fair to say that there's basically two threshold issues, assuming this is going to get litigated fully, which it looks like it's going to be. Um, one question is, is there a dispute about what actually happened to them? I'm sure that notwithstanding the Senate report, there yeah. are still disputes about what exactly happened to them. At the margins. Them, but it's not nearly as indeterminate as it was with these, you know, less widely examined earlier cases. Exactly so. Secondly, quite. Quite. <laughs> secondly, there's the question of whether... The uh, more extreme mode, I, I think it's pretty clearly the case that whatever the most extreme interrogation methods were, yeah. KSM at least was subjected to some of yeah. them. And, yeah. and so if any case is going to do it, this, it might be this one. Now, let me, let me stop here and say, like, I don't think there's the slightest chance in the universe that the indictment of the 9-11 case is thrown out and these guys aren't prosecuted. Because of how they were interrogated. I There's agree. no way that's happening. I agree. But there is a sanction short of dismissal that I think is very right. much so on the So that's table. what I wanted to get to. That, that, so that raises a much more interesting question, a more realistic question. Like what else could be if, if the process ultimately concludes, and no doubt this would have to go all the way up given the stakes, um, or at least close to the top, um, if it's actually decided that this was a rare instance of outrageous government conduct. And I'm not convinced it's going to come out that way. But if it were, what would the realistic sanction be? Let's I think, jump to that. I think the realistic sanction is taking the death penalty off the table. Um, and, and, and the irony of that is that it would actually have enormous strategic value to the military commissions to take the death penalty off, for the court, you know, for the commission to take the death penalty off the table in the 9-11 case. So? Because it dramatically simplifies the pretrial procedures. Oh, I see. So it's not strategic in the sense of like the larger U.S. counterterrorism no, 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 no. Strategic in the sense of, of speeding up and... and Increasing the smoothness of getting the result the government wants otherwise? Yes, that, that, that it actually, the government will, will go, you know, apoplectic if this happens. Mm -hmm. I actually think it would be a good thing for everybody, right? I think it would be the right message to send that the government's conduct warrants some non-complete sanction, right? Not, I'm, I'm actually right. with you that I think yeah. dismissal is... is right, there's no... Um, the, the whole reason why the commissions exist is for this, you know, anyway. Um, but, I mean, 
if you take the death penalty, if you say the government engaged in outrageous conduct in its treatment of these defendants, and it should therefore be subject to a sanction, I think the most obvious sanction is is taking the death penalty off the table, which then has the sort of salutary effect of dramatically simplifying um, That's fascinating. how things would unfold in the pretrial process, of lowering the stakes of, you know, the post-conviction appeal that we all assume would come. Think you might get some guilty pleas at that point? I mean, you know, it's been in the news for, I mean, you know, I still think part of why Harvey Rishikoff was fired as the convening authority was because he was aggressively pursuing the the proposal to have the 9-11 defendants plead guilty in exchange for life sentences. Um, so, I, I, you know, now I should say this is colored by my view that the government did, in fact, engage in outrageous conduct. Right. So let's come back to what sort of window. Obviously, we're not ready to see either side present their full cases on the merits of whether that standard, like, first of all, there's going to be a big fight over, like, what does that standard really mean other than I know it when I see it? There's a, that's the famous problem with the shocks to the conscious mm-hmm. test. It is a inherently deeply subjective inquiry and, uh, and also one that the subsequent case law interpreting the shocks to the conscious test in other settings has made clear is very much contingent on the totality of the circumstances, including what was the government's motivation for acting the way it did. That's going to loom really large here. In some ways, it's going to cause this pre-trial litigation issue to replicate and, and revisit some of the analysis that went into the uh, Justice Department OLC memos, I think, under Steve Bradbury, mm-hmm. uh, trying to interpret the CID standard, at which you referred to a moment ago. I mean, at the end of the day, Thanks to the reservations or understandings and declarations that the United States attached to its accession to the Convention Against Torture, which includes a CID treatment provision at Article 14, uh, the I think it's an understanding, might be a declaration, I forget which, uh, there's an understanding the Senate attached at the time saying that we understand that what we're signing up for here is CID, meaning that which would violate the 5th or 8th or 14th Amendments of the United States Constitution. And when you cash that out, what that actually means in practice, and what OLC, I think, correctly said it meant is that basically brings in doctrinally the shocks to the conscience test. And in the OLC's analysis, famously or infamously, during the Bush administration, what they then said was, well, look, let's start with the context because you are supposed to do that. And the context is, you know, preventing further terrorist attacks, get life-saving information. And in the OLC's hands, that was interpreted basically as saying, like, there's not much that would shock the conscience here. And even the EITs, waterboarding, cramped confinement, all the rest, in combination, somehow wouldn't you know, rise to the level of CID treatment. Now, I, I question, I don't, I don't agree with that interpretation. However, it's an illustration of how that argument certainly was made in that instance. And then the question becomes, all right, well, what, what's the same question going to produce in this instance? Um, the military commission presiding judge is going to have to decide that. And then it's going to, that, that analysis will get taken up to the CMCR. Well, it's complicated because, so so I was just rereading the statute that provides for interlocutory appeals by the government, 10 U.S.C. 950D. Um, I'm not sure a decision that takes the death penalty off the table is immediately appealable. Now, the government, of course, is entitled to seek an extraordinary writ. But as we've discussed before, the bar, right, for that kind of relief is incredibly high in this context. They they could certainly proceed to have the trial on the merits, the commission on the merits, they can't have a sentencing phase. I mean, the government would argue, I think, I mean, the government would argue quite correctly that this is the kind of issue that can't be resolved on a post-conviction, right, that the government's prejudice, I mean, I think it's right that taking the death penalty off the table is not something that can be fixed 
right after you know on a post conviction appeal. You can't you can the court can't say the trial court wrongly took the death penalty off the table and then so let's gonna, go have the trial again. Well, no, the, what they could do is redo the sentencing phase, right? So you know, yeah, but the trial would look different. I mean, the, the, a capital case just the the rules, right? I mean, the rules about your representation. For yeah, example, fair enough, fair enough. Unless um, they unless they proceed to try it as if it were capital with all the bells which they and wouldn't do. So right. so all yeah. So I think yeah. that you're right. So interlocutory would have to be there if that's the sanction it reaches. But I just you know I think the the there's a difference between I, I think there's a difference between the question of whether the you know controversial legal analyses that the Bush administration engaged in with regard to the RDI program should insulate the officers involved from civil liability, right? Which I think is a messier question because of sort of good faith and right, blah, right, blah, right. than in a criminal case, right? Whether the government as a whole could and should be sanctioned for the underlying conduct, even if the lawyers were creating different potential, you know, post hoc rationalizations for it. I agree with that. I think as a matter of logic to sort of distill that, it is logically consistent to say that the officers may not, it may be the right answer that the officers shouldn't face any liability because of the greater complexity of what they relied upon, what they thought they were doing, versus concluding here that perhaps there's the grounds were met. Now, again, that gets back to the question, not so much of was it CID treatment, unless we think outrageous government conduct should be equated doctrinally with the CID standards, such that anything that's CID is ipso facto, and obviously a fortiori torture, but if it's CID treatment, then ipso facto, it's also outrageous government conduct. I can imagine the government's going to argue that's not the case. That it, even They'll probably argue, although they're yeah. not going to want to be in right. print saying this, but I imagine if forced, they would say, if it's not CID treatment, if it is, that still doesn't make it quite at the level of outrageous government conduct. And, I think, and so to me, what I'm really watching is when the judge rules on the motion, does the judge say, yes, you're right, government, your conduct was not outrageous? Or does the judge say, the conduct was outrageous, but I'm only imposing a modest sanction? Right. And so like, then if we think from a bit of a realist perspective, you're the judge feeling very much caught between a rock and a hard place on this. If you if you think that this was outrageous conduct, but you're really worried about how you might be disrupting one of the, you know, this this incredibly important case yeah. where justice needs to be done yeah. as to the victims, um, then you might think, all right, so what I'm going to do is I am going to declare it to be such outrageous, right. but my sanction is going to be relatively modest and might not go to the level of what you're... And, and, and we've seen to. that before. I mean, so in the Musawi case, for example, so, you know, Zacharias Musawi, um, the district judge, when the government refused to provide Musawi with access to potentially exculpatory witnesses... Um, Judge Brinkema. KSM, I think, being one of them. KSM being one of those witnesses. Yeah, that's yeah. right. Um, yeah. <laughs> they, well, they, provi- they provided... Uh, Un- it had redacted be- summaries yeah. of, of of sort of interrogation right. transcripts. Yeah. Um, but not like... But not direct access. Right. Yeah. Um, so Judge Brinkema imposed, as it said, that is a Sixth Amendment violation, right, um, right that you're denying Musawi the right to... Um, oh, no, it might have been due process. That you're denying the access to potentially exculpatory... Yeah, it was a due process. Um, right, it wasn't, it wasn't a confrontation. Right. Um, and imposes a sanction, taking the death penalty off the table. Um, and the government successfully appealed that to the Fourth Circuit. The Fourth Circuit said, we agree that the government you know, acted wrongly here, but we don't think a punitive sanction was appropriate given the circumstances. Um, I have serious problems with the Fourth Circuit's analysis in that case, um, but I think that's the question. That, yeah, that, that frame... That could be what happens is what, and, yeah. and, and you know, from the perspective of a post-trial, a post-conviction appeal... Right. This is a huge ruling 
because one of the first things I'm sure the defendants will argue if they're convicted and then appeal um, is that, you know, the whatever the trial judge rules here short of dismissal, right, was erroneous. That's why, I, I, again, I'm not so sure that the right answer isn't for everybody's sake. Um, yes, it was outrageous conduct. No, I'm not dismissing, but I'm going to take the death penalty off the table. The government will, will blow a gasket. I understand that. What about an evidentiary sanction that is specific to the exact scenario complained of here? Yeah. That is to say, uh, is it possible the sanction instead will be that no uh, interrogation statements? But that's already, the, that's already is in that place. Already the, is that already the rule? Re- so remember yeah. last, last August, I believe, Judge Pohl, right, threw out not just the statements, right, but the clean team stuff, right? The, right the, if, so remember, right, the— God, I'd forgotten about the that. Government, so the government had tried to argue not that the actual CIA interrogated right, special committee— Right, but later sort of— But the, that, but that the yeah. sanitized, you know, Guantanamo-based FBI clean team statement should at least be admissible. And pull through those out. Is that? Did they seek interlocutory review of I don't that? think so. Yeah, wow. I, 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 I must confess, yeah. I've lost track. I, I haven't seen any traffic on that. It's possible they have, yeah. and I just haven't been following it. I apologize yeah. if so. But yeah. I haven't seen any noise about that. Yeah. And so, so long as that ruling's on the books, there already is, right? Yeah. So, so that that's not a sanction that would be relevant. right. So, if you're Perella, you know, and you're trying to figure out, like, you know, what what are the addition, you know, those statements are already out. Like, I, there's no more sanction vis-a-vis the interrogations that I can impose here. Yeah. Um, I'm not sure what else there is besides, you know. Uh, assuming no dismissal. Uh, I'll also say, this is a huge, I think, make or break moment for the 9-11 trial. Um, And it's, you know, the, there's a law dragon story that I think is focused on the, the the complexities of the government's position, whatever. I mean, that's, that's fine. Uh, This is really to me about the judge. That's so interesting. And, and, and sort of what judge Perella sort of, when he looks at the next couple of years of litigation in the 9-11 case, you know, how he wants it to unfold, because, I really, you know, I, I think a ruling that makes nobody happy could make everybody happy. So I predict that in the end, either he will not find it's right. outrageous government conduct, yep. or if he does, that it doesn't stick on appeal. So I think in the end, we won't actually find out the the ultimate, you know, question of sanctions. All right, but that's but by the way, be- and, and this this is just another opportunity for me to say, but imagine if there was no CMCR, and once Judge Perel issued that ruling, we just I had know. a quick, you know. Quick DC Circuit, yes or no? Yes, there we could not agree more. Yes, once again. All right, all right. Um, really quickly because um, yeah, our, round. our short episode has already run long. I know, and let's let's and I want to get to Westworld. All right, so um, I wanted to just note that today is the 45th anniversary of U.S. versus Nixon. Um, not because I mean there is the sort of fortuity that it's also the same day as the Mueller hearing. Oh my God! Ah. Um, but also because I think it's an interesting reflection on how times have changed. Um, so we've talked before, I think, Bobby, during our deep dive on the state secrets privilege about some of the background to the U.S. versus Nixon decision. Um, in a very short nutshell, this was the culmination of Nixon's effort to resist um, subpoenas Dukas Takeum from the second special prosecutor, uh, Leon Jaworski. I just want to say Ron Jaworski. Um, <laughs> right? From the second special. The, the As other a Giants Jaworski. fan, I'm surprised you would even mention it. It's well, such an Eagles icon. What can I say? But but as a, as a Texan, it's always fine to emphasize uh, Leon Jaworski, who of course eventually be. Uh, I don't know if at the time was a name 
part of Fulbright and Jaworski, one of the great Texas firms of all Indeed. time. Um, so so the, the, the short, short version is um, Jaworski was the special prosecutor. He had indicted a whole bunch of people, including the Attorney General John Mitchell, including Nixon's chief of staff, H.R. Haldeman. Um, Nixon was an unindicted co-conspirator. And as part of that case, he was looking for the, you know, the Watergate tapes. Um, the, the tapes of, of the, the product of the secret recording system Nixon had in the White House. Um, and Nixon had um, refused on grounds of executive privilege. And in an eight to nothing decision, because Justice Rehnquist did not participate because it involved John Mitchell. Um, this is the interesting thing about Rehnquist. Rehnquist did not, Rehnquist had been the assistant attorney general in charge right. of OLC. He did not recuse from all Nixon cases. He recused from all Mitchell cases. Um, and this was a Mitchell case. Yeah. Um, so, um, which I, I think actually I, I understand. Like, I, yeah. it makes a lot of sense to me. So, eight nothing opinion by Chief Justice Berger, which I think was quite intentional. That it was not just the Chief Justice writing the opinion, but it was Berger Nixon's handpicked Chief Justice. Um, so the court first holds. Um, I mean, it's it's a remarkably compromise heavy opinion, right? Because before getting to why Nixon loses. The court actually first holds that there is such a thing as a constitutionally grounded executive privilege, something the court had never said before. Right. So it starts off, and the government's thinking, oh, we're, we're winning, we're winning, we're winning. Um, right. And indeed, that the privilege is not just a common law privilege, but is actually grounded in Article 2, which, of yep. course, has consequences for Congress's ability to override it. Indeed. Um, but then um, Berger flips, you know, I mean, I say Berger, Did you say, are you going to say he flipped the burger? But, well, I was going to say Berger <laughs> flips. Um, but the the... I mean, it's quite clear this wasn't all Berger, right? That this was multiple justices writing different parts, and Berger sort of puts his name on yeah. it. Um, but then the court flips around and says executive privilege is only a qualified privilege; it can be overcome by external considerations. And then the court talks about the the interest in fairness and blah 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 in the criminal case as the grounds on which they were going to override privilege in that case. And as I always sort of try to force my con law students to see. Um, that would make a lot of sense if it were the defendants who were requesting the tapes, right? That is to say, right. That's right, who's got that. Right, this that goes interest, back to Musawi. Yes, this goes back right. to the, the same right. Fifth Amendment idea. That interest in fairness in a criminal case is not is not by is not symmetrical. It's right? a defendant's procedural due process, correct? Right. Or or maybe Sixth Amendment, right? Insofar yeah. as it's a confrontation issue. Um, and yet it was the prosecutor who wanted the tapes. I said, you know, I said to my students, can you think of any other context where we say that the prosecutor has a due process right to the disclosure yeah. of information? No. So, you know, Nixon is this remarkable decision because it doesn't, like, it goes out of its way to decide a major constitutional question that it didn't need to decide in favor of the presidency and then rules against the president on grounds that are really, really hard to to generalize, right? Because it's really hard to imagine in a future case, the court saying, yes, the prosecutor's interest in the tapes overwhelms the... This was, a, it, this was really a context-specific interpretation with a not-all-that-fitting rationale offered behind it, but the result's the result. Well, so, so, so I want to say two things about that. So there's the result, right, which is, so Nixon had to turn over the tapes, and after a very brief sort of internal debate about whether he could refuse to comply, he complies, and of course, one of the tapes is the so-called smoking gun tape, the release of the smoking gun tape is what finally erodes the remaining support he had among Senate Republicans, mm -hmm. which is what then convinces him that he has to resign. He resigns 16 days um, after the Supreme Court decision. That's not, not a coincidence. Um, but the doctrinal consequences are, to me, Bobby, what is so relevant to today and, and frustrating because the Supreme Court hasn't taken a single case about executive privilege 
in the 45 years since Nixon was decided. Um, successive presidents, right, of both parties have interpreted executive privilege to be far broader than the privilege the court recognized in Nixon. I'm not saying they're wrong, right, right. but certainly that they, they have read it to do a lot more than Chief Justice Berger's opinion seems to contemplate. Um, and we are, see, we are reaping today, right, the consequences of the lack of further doctrinal elucidation by the Supreme Court of the scope of privilege, of which communications it applies to, of the circumstances where it can be overridden. And so, you know, to me, the anniversary is not about Mueller's testimony. It's about the, the morass of subpoena-related privilege-involved litigation yeah. That right now, I think, would be a lot less of a morass if Nixon weren't the Supreme Court's last word on the subject. Interesting. Well, you know, you put your finger on something important, which is that the public's focused entirely on the Mueller report. Um, and today's an extreme example of that. The action, in many respects, on things like tax returns, on, on the documents that certain banks have, uh, that's, where the, that's where the really important battles are being fought. And they're being fought in terms of privilege claims, privilege claims that are being attempted by the administration, or I guess I would say by Trump and the Trump enterprises rather than the administration, because I think it's personal at, at some level um, what some of these claims are, uh, trying to extend them to bind third parties, former employees of the executive branch, what they can testify about, banks, what they can share. Uh, it matters hugely and probably more ultimately than than what's come from the Mueller investigation, which seems to have, it, you know, as today emphasizes, kind of run its course. Yeah. Um, and is not itself, you know, nothing that's being said today is probably changing Minds. the percentage of people yeah. on one side of these issues or the others. Right. Whereas, whereas the culmination of these subpoena cases, especially if the, you know, if the president loses and has to turn over documents that tend to be quite damaging, could be huge. Yeah. It's increasingly clear, something we said before, which is that the pace at which those litigations are unfolding probably is not going to, nothing too dramatic is going to happen that really has that kind of effect prior to the election. Maybe. I mean, I, I, I remain somewhat optimistic, although perhaps cautiously optimistic, that at least in the um, Mazars and Deutsche Bank cases, right, the private, the, the Trump suit cases as opposed to the defensive cases, yeah, yeah. Um, that the second and D.C. circuits are actually moving fast enough. But we'll see. Yeah, we will. All right. Um, just a quick note, um, because we said we'd mention it, but this will just be real quick. Uh, Bill Barr, the attorney general, was at... Uh, the international there was an international cybersecurity conference that took place. He gave a talk there that got a lot of attention because he uh, waved the going dark flag uh, very very strongly. He, he what is the going what the going dark is the going dark flag black? It's not a black flag. It's a checkered flag. It's a checkered flag. It's a, it's a checkered concept. Black and white checkered. I don't know where we're red going with red and that. red and black. So so the going dark doll. It, oh, you know, that's a great book. Yeah. Um, the Red and the Black. But no. The, and Red and Black is a great song from Les Mis. That is, is that the closing first No. Act? No. One so, Day More is the closing first. Bobby yeah. Chesney. Well, I forget that. This is why I asked the question. Um, it might be. You know what? It might be the end of the first CD on the complete symphonic collection. That actually would That might be it. what you're – See, there's a reason. But we, because, you know. because I don't know if this is what you're going. Uh, my, my Les Mis soundtrack – experience is the three CD complete symphonic recording. Actually, where I was going is, are you going to come see Les Mis? Oh, we already have tickets. Oh, good. Um, little Chesney family trivia, Heather and I's first date, Les Mis in San Antonio. Ooh. Yeah, very exciting. Um, anyways, <laughs> uh, how did we get there from 
Uh, Red and black. Yeah. Checkered. I guess we were thinking of decryption. Javert, is that what we're thinking of? 24601? Javert doesn't doesn't have any lines in red and black. That's not what I'm saying. I was trying to make a a snarky comparison to those who are fearful that the government's going to use compelled access, lawful access in Javert like ways. I think that, that all, I think, is not a helpful contribution to the debate. People. You know, Ron Wyden and others have said, like, oh, this is terrifying. This is going to give the Trump administration access to everyone's phones. The debate isn't about changing the terms on which the government can get uh, access legally through warrants or otherwise. Uh, substantively, sorry, it's a question. Uh, sorry. Oh, sorry. You got something for uh, me? The Breaking ABC news? Cafe hyphen red and black is actually track two on disc two of the complete symphony. Right, so this recording. goes nowhere then. Sorry. Stars is the last track on disc one. I would like you to sing it. Would you? Would you like to jump in on that one? It's a little out of my range. That's a high. You got to have you got to have good range on that. All right. All we need to say here is that the attorney general said going dark continues to be a huge problem, getting worse, et cetera, and insists that there needs to be a solution involving some sort of uh, presumably statutory intervention along the lines, I, I presume, of of CALEA or the what is it? Uh, Communications Assistance to yeah, Law Enforcement CALEA. Act. Uh, and I say it would be along those lines because I don't think there's any chance the Justice Department is going to specify a technical solution. I think, if anything, this would portend that there might eventually be a push to get some sort of just broad directive that somehow, some way, lawful access, which is to say when the government otherwise has the right to surveil the communication, that the, the company or the provider somehow has to find a way to provide plain text. Um, will we see that? I see no sign that Congress is any more interested in doing this than before. Nope. So I think it's more a question of the executive branch continuing periodically to keep the keep this stove warm on this issue. Uh, we talked a, about a month ago about a National Security Council, I think, deputies meeting where this issue came up. And the scuttlebutt at the time was that this issue was presented. Uh, I think we can assume that the AG finds it an issue worth keeping alive, but nobody has a proposed solution. No one in Congress is championing this in is, a way that's likely to go through. Is the last thing you and I wrote together the thing about the Apple, the iPhone, the San Bernardino? Is it? Perhaps, yeah, yeah. probably so. The next thing will be the introduction to that collected volume we're supposed Indeed. to be producing. Yeah. Uh, what do you mean? We haven't written that yet? Uh, the introduction's been waiting on there. Yeah. All the pieces to come in. All right. Um, <laughs> there are only two chapters missing, right? No chapters missing. They're no, all there. no, no, no. <laughs> all right, so uh, let's get frivolous. Although, wait, I want to talk about the Michael. So wait, so so um, so David Chamberlain, who is the uh, 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 senior vice president, chief marketing officer for SonicWall, tweeted: "U.S. Attorney General William Barr says Americans should accept security risks of encryption." Um, and General Michael Hayden replied. Not really. And I was the director of the National Security Agency. It's always fun to be able to tweet that. I, I will say that, and in, in you've heard this before, because I think you and I did a panel here at UT once where I was making this point. It, I don't think it is helpful. I understand rhetorically why it's helpful, but I don't think it is substantively helpful for the opponents of the lawful access or you know compelled access uh, effort to say that, yes, it's true that if you create any such system, it clearly does increase the chance that someone unauthorized also will figure out some way to take advantage of that increased attack surface to do something they shouldn't. Um, that's true, but that just begs the question, okay, fine, but but how much, how easy would it be for them to do that? How much harm realistically can we expect there to compare it to the benefits that would flow to the government if it's able to access that information? A, a serious debate doesn't just say, hey, compelled access makes us all 
somewhat less vulnerable, perhaps a lot less vulnerable. We don't know. You, you've got to get into the details. The, and, and the trade-offs. You have to get into, yeah, you have to make some sort of effort to do a policy quantification and yep. trade-off analysis yep. to make that argument. I agree. What we typically see is just, hey, that will make phones less secure, therefore don't do it. No, no, there's, the, there's no question that the second you start thinking about this on a nuanced level, you see that this is a really complicated trade-off situation. Yeah. The, the better critique is those who say, like, unless and until someone can articulate what the system would be, right. it's all just notions. You can't just say, snap your fingers, do some math magic, and make it happen. Right. And especially in a context in which whatever the vulnerability is that would help the government would be a vulnerability that, like, there's no way to, there's no way to constrain the vulnerability to the government's eyes only. Well, yes and no. So that's kind of my point a moment ago, that it, it's not a yes or no. Right. It's more of a spectrum. Right. In theory, any type of designed access, in theory, is going to be vulnerable at some level. True, but that doesn't mean just anybody could do it. There's right. a question of how hard would it be, how realistic is it to think that right. some harm do would Do you need a follow. supercomputer? Yeah, exactly. So, okay. all right, Westworld. <laughs> Speaking of. Friends, if you, if, you, if you don't care about Westworld, or, and especially if you're trying to you know, not know what's coming up for season three, <laughs> and above all, if you haven't yet watched season one and two but plan to, Now's the time to sign off. Indeed, I, I was gonna, the last part is true. The spoilers ahead. Spoilers ahead. What were the, right. We were talking about some movie yesterday. Um, oh, we are talking about Don't Tell Mom the Babysitter's Dead. Because um, I said something oh, wow, like... that is an old one. We were out to dinner with two of our neighbors, um, and... and um, there was some uh, one of the um, one of our neighbors said something. I said, "I'll get right on top of that rose," um, and she was very excited because she got the reference. Don't um, tell mom the baby. Who's in that? Christina Applegate. Yeah, that, um, was that her first big role? I don't know if it was her first big role. It certainly was one of early early big roles. Oh, I guess I guess uh, Married with Children, right? But I don't know which came first. I actually don't know when. When I I, I did not do my research on this. Yeah. Anyway, but I'll just say, <laughs> but I, you know, so so um, the 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 wife was explaining to the 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 husband, our neighbor, um, the sort of the central gist of the plot of Don't Tell Mom the Babysitter is Dead, and she said, "Well, so the babysitter dies." I was like, "Spoiler alert!" <laughs> <laughs> well, with Westworld, uh, the reason we're excited to talk about it is new trailer, big. More detailed Much trailer more detailed. Than, than the original season three trailer. So Karen said this about Karen. Karen actually has a really good line about Westworld. She says it's the first show that she and I have ever watched together, where at the end of the show we are both hopelessly confused and really excited, right? Like like some shows leave us really confused, and we're like, this is annoying. Like I, I you know I don't enjoy the confusion. In Westworld, the confusion is kind of like the thing. Well, there's a sense that the the, the showrunners and the writers have a plan for you that's mm -hmm. going to be unveiled and give you a reasonably plausible yes. payout at the end where it'll come together and, and not just pull some sort of, you know, finale of loss sort of no thing. No MacGuffins. Yeah. Um, season three, it looks like it's going to unfold to go sort of to a, a different level on that. It's hard to know from just the trailer. Yeah, although, man. I mean, but what, what, So what do we know from this new trailer? Right, so the new trailer reveals a couple of different things, right? So... Um, it is hard to keep up with which brains are in which bodies. Um, yeah, yeah, that's. <laughs> but but there are right there. There's so Dolores is out there, which we already knew, and 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 it's Dolores's brain in Dolores's body. Well, that's what's confusing because she doesn't exit Westworld, which we'll talk about again in a moment. She exits Westworld not in her own appearing body. Right, she's in Charlotte's body. So in the trailer, we see both Charlotte and Dolores. Yes. Raising the question of, you know, did she double herself? Are there two Doloreses? Did she put somebody else in Charlotte's right. body? Right. Um, Maybe so. I know, but but so Charlotte had so we, Dolores had been the the first sneak peek trailer, which I think pre premiered um, during the Game of Thrones during the Game of Thrones yeah. right before the Game of Thrones finale. Yeah. Um, um, Charlotte wasn't in that. 
Um, right. right? So, and so you just thought like, oh, okay, so she ditched that body and got back but into no. her But no, so body. Charlotte actually plays a major... So in the in the new trailer, right, not only is Charlotte playing a central role, but it looks like she is acting as if she's still, you know, senior vice president of Delos, right, or whatever her, her big boss role is. It would be, you know, given whatever Dolores' plans for, you know, revenge on humanity, uh, it would be a shame not to take advantage of having... Charlotte's body. Yep. Right. Yep. That's a. We also see Bernard, who we had not mm-hmm. seen. Yep. Um, right. So Bernard is back. Um, Ta- talking in narrator fashion about Ford and Ford's plan for us all. And, you know, that the, the God treatment for Ford. Um, and all, but also, like, you know, how he, like, I mean, uh, Jeffrey Wright is so good, but like how, yeah. how you get the sense that, like, Bernard is there, even though Bernard is a host, right? Bernard is not, like, Dolores is there to blow stuff up. Bernard is there to try to, like, salvage something to figure out some to 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 sort of fix something he certainly seems positioned as protagonist yes in the whole deal right whereas dolores is at least one of the antagonists um then there's charlotte and then great twist there's mave and where is Maeve? Yes. So <laughs> that's the twist. So the first part, so the first shot of Maeve, you don't really quite understand where she is. And then she throws open the windows. Um, and she's in Nazi occupied Europe. Yeah. What the what is going on there? <laughs> um, so, so the what so, year is this and where are they and what's happening? So, you know, my first, the, the, in the moment, I was like, wait. Now they're time traveling, but no, 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 no. they're not yeah. time traveling. It's a, it's a Westworld world. It's a Westworld world. Apparently, the the online people call it War World. Fair enough. World um, War World World. Just World War World War World, which I think is what the f- so we we yeah. knew about Westworld, right? We knew about Shogun World. We know about um, Raj, Raj World, world yeah. right? There's supposed to be six, right? We know about War. Now we know about War World. Um, yeah. Supposedly, there's like Future World. So, so I, uh, I'm trying one? to recall from, from uh, yes, yeah, like a tomorrow. Oh, like, no, no. So there's future world and there's like medieval world. Yeah, there's got to be. Right. Hey, Game of Thrones. Right. Oh, because well, we Westeros world. But we also see oh the guy. God. We also see the security guy whose name I don't remember grabbing like a battle axe at one point. Yeah, yeah. Right. Hey, but how great would it be if they had a Westeros world and they just did a full on crossover? <laughs> <laughs> and, and the and 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 the White Walkers are actually hosts. Uh, yeah, who would you play? Uh, <laughs> serious, serious diversion question. If you could inject as any, uh, what would you be? Which house would you be in? Would you even be one of the human characters? Would you go in as White Walker? That didn't look very fun. As near as I can tell, the White I Walker be, experience I mean, is pretty lame. It's a really, it's a really interesting personality test. Like, you know, do you want, do you want to be Bran so you know everything, right? Do you want to be Tyrion so that you're funny and you know have a lot of sex, right? Do you want to be? I Assume mean, you don't get to be a character. You just get to oh. plug in as a, as sort why? of a generic. Why, why, why do you have to be a character? A generic, well. Just because we got to go in sequence here, we'll do that next. The first question is if you're going to plug in 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 its sort of like original setup, you know, uh, maybe season one ish, book one ish, and you're going to be in one of the houses. Do you drop in as sort of a a senior Lannister relative, a senior Stark relative? You know, you're going to be a, a Mister. Yeah, yeah, that'd be kind of gross. You'd have to do all the medical stuff. That's true. Anyway, all right. Leaving aside the Westworld world. Uh, oh, sorry. The the Westeros world. By the way, the correct answer I think is to go to Dorne, where like right you that know. that new prince was chilling. <laughs> that, that looks pretty fun. Right. Um. Um. And where apparently like life is life is life is easy. Go to the arbor. Yeah. The, the violence does never actually think. I don't think it ever actually comes to the to the not not on not on screen. Yeah. Um. All right. Back to Westworld. So yes. so Maeve is apparently in War World, although it's not remotely clear yeah. what she's doing. Right. To me. But is it possible? Is simply that. She's, you know, the the company has got 
Westworld, after all the problems of season two, they're back up and running two years later. And uh, she's been injected as a character in and the like, normal and, way. And, and all of a sudden she's... But but at the end I mean, at the end of season two, it's not like she was in captivity, right? Like, I mean, she was... Wasn't she at, at, at Freedom? It's an interesting question. Like, one of the things we got to find out in season three is what about the, those who didn't go through into the uh, sort of the Matrix-like Nirvana... For those who didn't go through, like, right. do they just continue to run around the park and kind of like guerrilla style get back into various plot lines when the company reopens the park? Maybe. And then she's like an insurgent within the park. Okay, so there are two other things I want to flag. Right, there is apparently real tension between the humans and robots in okay. this future. No, that so out so. Maybe outside the park in yes. what seems to be Dolores. Unless it's future world, right? So it's right. either the real world of like episode two from season two where like we see the future like Hong Kong-ish looking city. Right, so it's like 2050 or something like right. that. Or it's future world. So I think more likely that's like that's meant to be the real external yes. world outside the But there's the at park. least a, qu- a question. There it's is. Like, it's like Total Recall or The Matrix. Like, is this real or is this not real? Take the pill. Yes. Uh I think probably it's it's meant to be real as far as it goes, and so in their environment, they've got a budding, long predicted crisis of uh, uh, violations of the first law of robotics, right? So <laughs> you've got a scene of of human uh, police officers gunning down a presumably robot. a rogue robot. Yeah. You get to see some armed uh, a, what a riot control a riot, mega a, robot, a mega riot control robot that that Charlotte's character is apparently on good terms with. And so pretty clearly from the voiceover with Dolores, there's uh, Dolores' plan involves, let's see if I can make common cause with, with the, the robots. enslaved robots of That's the right. world. That's right. And many of which are heavily armed and right. heavy. Right. And let's fight the humans together. And 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 maybe Charlotte as the, you know, outward facing senior Dallas executive, but actually host, right? And so you've got like a Blade Runner thing going where Dolores expresses that the the remaining external hosts, they're being hunted. Um this is, it's just, all I have to say is, I have no idea what's going on, and I cannot wait. Ditto. Dude. Uh, that's going to be fun to break down in real time. Yep. Um, and this time, I'll be watching in real time for once. I, you know, I mean, it's only like a year away. Yeah, that, that's good. Everyone else get on board. Um, all right, I have to go back to writing my brief in opposition to cert. The, I, I was telling Bobby before we started, the government on Monday filed a cert petition um, in the case I had argued in CAF, the Court of Appeals of the Armed Forces, in December. I think it's the first cert petition by the government in a milita- in a court martial case in like a decade. That's pretty cool. No, yeah. not cool. <laughs> not cool. Not cool for your uh, time and bandwidth. Karen, basically, Karen, like, I, I told Karen her reaction was like, you know, another one? Like, <laughs> one, one Supreme Court case was awesome. Two is cute. Three... Is 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 not acceptable. You're starting to rack up. Is there a thing like hats? Is there like a your ties? There you, are no hats. You should have a tie, and when you argue wearing the tie, that tie should never be worn again. You should have it on the wall here, and you should have a whole line of them eventually. And students will come in and be like, "What are those?" And be like, "Those are my Supreme Court argument ties." Ooh, professor, so impressive. Yeah, I am so not that person. <laughs> I know, but it'd be so great. It's like William A. Hayes in Major League, right? His you know, gloves. He's the gloves, right? Yeah. I bought a hundred of these. One for every base I'm going to steal. Wesley Snipes. That's right. Yeah, that was actually, I, I have defended on this show before Major League Two as a not preposterous sequel, yeah. except for the fact that they somehow snuck Omar Epps right into, Web, oh, they into, into Wesley Snipes' character. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. You're right about that. That was, that was an unfortunate He was transition. probably pretty expensive to get at that time. They could get him now. You got to do it, though. Right. He's not going to be in Blade, I guess. So <laughs> that's actually okay. I'm sorry. That just reminds me. Um, so at the end of um, 
one of the Rush Hour movies, you know, uh, um, uh, Chris Tucker and, and Jackie Chan. Yeah. Um, there are outtakes, right, in the... Uh, oh, I bet that's good. Um, and so after after one of the bad guys, quote-unquote, dies, right, Chris Tucker says, he ain't going to be in Rush Hour 3. <laughs> that's pretty great. Well, neither are we, so... And quite. <laughs> All right. On that note, he is at Bobby Chesney. I'm at Steve underscore Vladek. We are at NSL Podcast. Um, we will unfortunately be back next week because, you know, it's the summer and we're lame. All right. Well, hopefully we won't have too much to talk about. Um, I feel, you know, one of these days, the dam is going to burst. Although late July and early August yes. is usually the lull in D.C. land. Yeah. So, so, hey, listeners, if you have stuff you'd like to hear us talk about, right, um, now might be the time of year to, to send us topic suggestions. Until then, stay safe out there. Adios.